0: Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to The Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to The Science of Success, the number one evidence based growth podcast on the internet, with more than 5 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, We share how you can be more confident when you make the tough decisions in your life, discuss how to deal with FOMO, and show you the key to ultimately achieving greatness with our guest, Patrick McGinnis. Are you a fan of the show, and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there with with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called how to create time for what matters most in your life. If that sounds exciting and interesting and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word smarter, that's s m a r t e r to the number 44 222. In our previous episode, we shared how to decide what's really important in your life, how self-care can actually lead to massively increased productivity, and how you can put away the guilt of not working hard enough with our previous guest, Denise Gosnell. Now, for our interview with Patrick. Patrick J. McGinnis is a venture capitalist, writer, and speaker who has invested in leading companies around the world. He's the creator and host of the hit podcast, FOMO Sapiens, and he coined the term FOMO which stands for Fear of Missing Out, which was added to the Oxford English Dictionary in 2013. He's also the creator of the term FOBO, or Fear of a Better Option, and has been featured as the creator of both terms in media outlets, including the New York Times, the Financial Times, the Boston Globe, and many more. Patrick is also the author of the international bestseller, The 10% Entrepreneur, and the recently released Fear of Missing Out, Practical Decision-Making in a World of Overwhelming Choice. Patrick, welcome to the Science of Success. Great to be here, Matt. Well, we're super excited to have you on the show. Your background is so fascinating, and and, um, you have a very unique claim to fame.
1: I do. Shall I say it, or do you want to? Lead the way. All right. I am the person who invented the term FOMO, or fear of missing out.
0: Did you know at the time when you wrote that, that it was going to become such a cultural phenomenon? I mean, really, in many ways, defines in a major sense, a huge piece of our culture today.
1: No. And in fact, you know, I came up with this idea and I wrote an article about it when I was at Harvard Business School. And this was back in 2003. So this was pre-social media. It was a really nichey problem that me and my friends lived with. And then thanks to the internet and social media and all the other things that, are, that we now have in our lives, it has become, you know, an affliction that affects billions of people around the globe. It's kind of incredible. I certainly didn't expect it.
0: It's so fascinating because social media has, in so many ways, really exacerbated this challenge. And I'd love to hear your perspective on where we are from kind of a cultural standpoint today in terms of FOMO and all of the overwhelming choices and everything that are circulating all around us.
1: The thing about FOMO is... It is definitely enabled by technology, but it is also part of the human experience. So if you think back to it, there are really three things that cause FOMO in people, and and maybe just helpful for us to define what FOMO is. FOMO is an anxiety created by a belief that there's something better out there that we could be doing, often fed by social media, and it's also a desire to be part of the crowd or to not be excluded from a social experience where others are taking part. And so that's really what it is. And so if we think back, it is part of our DNA. Our earliest ancestors were keenly aware of what they needed but maybe didn't have in order to survive in the Darwinistic survival of the fittest. And so even the earliest humans felt feelings of FOMO even though there was not a word for it at the time. It's also been part of our culture for a long time. So The expression keeping up with the Joneses is a lot like FOMO, and that's been around for over 100 years. It actually comes from a comic strip that was run in the early 1900s about this family that lived next to the Joneses. And the Joneses were always doing something a little extra, and so this family felt pressure to keep up. And that was the whole kind of conceit of the comic strip. And ironically, the name of this family was the McGuinness family. When I heard that, I read that actually there was a researcher at Boston University who wrote a history of FOMO, he tied that back to me and I couldn't believe it. And then we have technology and that's where things changed. Even though we had expressions like keeping up with the Joneses where FOMO became sort of a necessary word to have in our lexicon because all of a sudden it wasn't just that you would compare yourself with your neighbor, it was that you compare yourself to people across the globe or to people who are celebrities who you have no ability to keep up with. And more than that, because of social media, Not only are we super connected, but also we are able to shape our lives in specific ways that are completely unrealistic. So we look at the way people portray their lives online, and they're not at all connected to reality. But when we look at them, we spend a lot of time idealizing them and injecting into that space our own expectations and so you see that perfect picture with that perfect family and the life that looks so great to you and when you're sitting on your couch in your underwear it's easy to feel inadequate and so that's what's happened and it's become a big part of our society you look for follow now on google there are 10 million hits it's in the dictionary and it's become a word that's used not only by advertisers but by people across our society to communicate the specific anxiety that many of us feel.
0: It's so crazy that in in many senses, technology and really specifically social media has basically just been a massive amplifier for FOMO and this phenomenon, which, as you said, in some sense is really an evolutionary artifact that's baked into the neurology of our brains.
1: Yeah, it is. You obviously can have FOMO without social media of course as it is part of the human experience but it is that proximity to comparison that reference anxiety that we provoke all of the time that has weaponized these feelings and made them something that you know there's interesting statistics out there that show that more than half of people feel FOMO when they're away from news sources or from social media networks. So it's also the 24-hour news cycle and all these other things that are constantly bombarding us with information that we cannot possibly begin to process and that hijacks our feelings and uses them against us.
0: And so tell me a little bit more about what happens when we experience FOMO. What is that like and why is it such a bad thing?
1: Yeah, so we can talk about the good parts of FOMO, because I don't want to be totally negative, but just with the bad stuff, so FOMO is basically, as I defined earlier, it's this anxiety that we feel when we compare ourselves with others, and it's also this desire to be part of the herd. So in one sense, FOMO is an aspirational feeling. It's the idea that there is something better out there that we could be having. And as human beings, we naturally want to have the best. And so there is this perception that, oh my goodness, if I were just doing this or that, my life would be better. And the reality is we don't know if that's true because we can't know if it's true. There's definitely an information asymmetry that's at play when you're seeing something out there and you say, oh, that looks so great. If you could actually jump through the screen and see if it were actually good, then you would know and you could actually have authentic feelings. But unfortunately. unfortunately. Unfortunately, because of information asymmetry, we can't know if those things are as truly good as they seem from the outside, right? So that's the first part. And one of the big problems there, of course, is the fact that because there is not clear information, we spend a lot of time inventing things. And filling the uncertainty with our own sort of projections, right? Second is this herd element. It's the idea that other people are doing something and I don't wanna be left out. And that is really, at the end of the day, if you think about it, it, reminds me a lot of being a kid or in high school when you're a follower. And when you are worried about what the herd is doing and you wanna keep up with the crowd you are unfortunately not doing things that are actually authentic to you. So it's kind of like the classic example. I remember when I was growing up, I wanted to buy a pair of Air Jordans because everybody had Air Jordans. In fact, I bought them. My mom, I convinced her, bought the Air Jordans. And then I got them home and they were not comfortable and I didn't like high tops and I never wore them when you have FOMO, not only are you aspiring to things that you may not even like, but you're aspiring to the dreams of other people. And the worst thing that you can do in your life is spend all of your time fixated on getting or achieving something that isn't even actually the thing you truly want. And that's what happens when you have FOMO. And so that's really bad. And it leads to three kind of major outcomes. The first is that it can affect your mental health. And so FOMO has been studied in depth by clinical psychologists and it's shown to provoke feelings of inferiority and stress and just a lessened overall mood and it just creates a lot of pressure on people that doesn't feel good and that's it's really shocking how how much ink has been spilled in the psychology world on how FOMO affects our mental health. The second is it affects your finances. There have been incredible studies out there by, for example, Charles Schwab that show that people spend money because of their FOMOs, money that they don't have in order to keep up with other people. And the third is productivity. If you spend more and more time focusing on other people and on the social networks and really immersed in this world of comparison, it takes time away from your normal life. And that's part of the reason why we spend so much time on our phones. And believe me, I look at my phone and I ask myself, how is it possible I spent four hours on my phone today? But then I look at it and it can be things like social media that cause us to do those things. So those are the bad things about FOMO. The good thing about FOMO, and this can be harnessed and used for good, is that if we listen to our FOMO, it may be suggesting to us things that we wish we could do. So say you hear about your friend who started an entrepreneurial venture and you think to yourself, man, I just I'm going to the office every day, punching the clock. I really wish I could be an entrepreneur. I really wish I had an idea for a startup. That actually, even though it is FOMO, may actually prompt you to think about doing something entrepreneurial. So it can be very positive in terms of waking us up to latent interests that we might have.
0: Yeah, that's a great insight. And it's important too, to have that perspective that it probably is largely a negative phenomenon, but there are ways that you can harness it or listen to it and glean some kind of positive insight. You know, one of my favorite comments about negative emotions is a very similar idea, which is that negative emotions are data, but not direction, right? And so you can listen to them. doesn't mean you have to do necessarily what they're telling you, but there's valuable information that you're getting from your FOMO in some sense.
1: Yeah, and and I spent a lot of time in the book talking about this. I call the response to this feeling. When you learn that there's something interesting to you, of course, there's still information asymmetry. So you may think, I really want to be an entrepreneur. But if you've never been an entrepreneur, you don't know quite yet, even if you like it, right? You're just projecting again. So what I encourage people to do is to engage in those things part-time. And I call it going all in some of the time. And my whole uh, sort of first book, The 10% Entrepreneur, was about part-time entrepreneurship. And so you try it out, see if you like it, Fill in that information asymmetry with information. And then if you do like it, and if you think it's promising, then go after it full time. And so it can be a great strategy. And I love what you said about negative emotions, because it is true that it is data. And if you look at it clinically and strip out some of the emotion, then you can actually benefit from it.
0: I want to bring in the other term that you've coined and explore that as well, and how it relates to FOMO and how it relates to our lives and how we make decisions. And there's so many interesting things to unpack from that. Tell me a little bit about Fobo.
1: All right, so FOMO and Fobo were invented at the same time on the same day. They were put in the same article that I wrote back in school in 2004. And while FOMO went on and became a word celebrity and is in the dictionary today, and the article was called McGuinness's Two Foes: Social Theory at HBS. So the other foe of the two foes, Fobo never really got famous. It's sort of getting its day now, and it's been written about in different magazines like the New York Times, and it's been in Politico. So it's getting its moment in the sun now, but it really hasn't been prominent, and which is ironic because as I think about FOMO and FOBO, and FOBO stands for fear of a better option, FOBO is actually far worse for you. So FOBO is an anxiety that when you're making a decision and you have acceptable options before you, that there might be another option you haven't found yet. And therefore, in the desire to maximize, you hold back and keep your options open for as long as possible in hopes that something better comes along and so it is this sort of very interesting form of risk aversion so some people would say well that sounds optimistic you know you're looking forward to something better coming along so you're waiting for that to show up on your doorstep i see that as risk aversion because it is actually the unwillingness to settle for less than perfect and so as a result never actually settling for anything at all that's what happens when you have fobo if you think about fomo as being a follower Phobo is sort of like doing nothing. It is being stuck in analysis paralysis and therefore being unable to do anything. And the reason why I think it's far worse than FOMO is that, as I just mentioned with FOMO, listen, FOMO affects you and it has clear effects, but there is also a potential upside to your FOMO if you can learn to manage it. Fobo, on the other hand, doesn't just affect you. It affects the people around you and there's nothing good that can come of it. So I like to think of FOMO kind of like drinking wine. A little wine never hurt anybody if done in moderation. And in fact maybe you loosen up and try something new. Phobo is like smoking cigarettes. Nothing good for you, nothing good for the people around you. All it does is cause problems.
0: It's really interesting to re-examine or classify Phobo as risk aversion because that casts it in a light where you can really start to see the, the downstream effects of it, which is essentially that you stop taking risk, you stop taking action, and your decision-making gets paralyzed.
1: Yeah. Think about this paradigm. And I invest in companies. I'm I'm an entrepreneur. I know that you are as well. And many of the people listening to show are entrepreneurs. And if you think about how an entrepreneurial venture would operate if it were riddled with phobo, you could never make progress. And in fact, the reason why entrepreneurial ventures oftentimes are so successful and why they're able to kill off large companies is because Entrepreneurial ventures are decisive, and large companies are stuck with phobo. And there's a great example that I think shows this, and that's the example of Audi. Audi decided in 2009 that it wanted to build an electric car. And then, because of phobo, procrastinated and changed its mind, and Bob and accounting got involved, and Sheila and marketing got involved, and all of these things happened. And it took them over 10 years to come out with an electric car. Meanwhile, you have a pure-play startup, Tesla, Elon Musk. We can definitely all agree that the man does not have FOBO. He builds that company. He's got a product in market within a couple of years. And now, even though the number of units sold is far lower when you compare Tesla to Audi, Tesla is you know, is worth a lot more and is a much more valuable company. Why? Because startups are decisive and they take advantage of the indecision of large, stable companies.
0: So we're getting into one of my all-time favorite topics. And really, one of the main reasons I even started this podcast years ago was because I was so interested in decision-making. And you even touched on it to some degree. Selfishly, I use this show. I mean, we share all kinds of really interesting ideas and conclusions and everything. But selfishly, I take everything and apply it to the business world and reap the benefits of that. But decision making to me has always been one of the most important and high-value skill sets that you can cultivate. It's so interesting to me to see in today's world, especially with things like FOBO, That There's so many people and I get emails all the time from podcast listeners who are in the same place. They don't know how to make a decision. They don't know how to be decisive. They're stuck. They feel like they don't have any confidence. They can't choose between the myriad of options in front of them. How do you start to pare down this world of overwhelming choice and the trap of overanalysis and really start to hone that into better decision making?
1: This is something that I have spent a lot of time thinking about, I know you do too. Decision making, I mean we make thousands of decisions a day, right? So it's something that we all need to learn how to do. And in fact, many of us think we're very good at it, right? So. I think in general we all feel like okay I'm, I know how to make decisions but when we get into a time of crisis that's when our flaws are exposed and we see that with leaders around the world whether it's Brexit and the the indecision of the British government or it's the response to the coronavirus and who moved quickly and who didn't who was had the phobo and who didn't all of these things get exposed. But what's interesting is also to think about is that many of us waste a lot of time in our daily lives on things that don't really matter. And we are mired in decisions on things that suck up our time, but don't give us much sort of of a benefit return. And so first of all, I would say that the, the first thing you have to do as you think about making better decisions is realize that Many of us spend time on decisions. We waste our time on decisions that aren't important. And when we do that, we then give ourselves less time and energy to focus on the things that really matter. And that right there is something that I learned way back in college. So in the book, I talk about decision making and I give you strategies to deal with FOMO and FOBO. And they're different for when it comes to major decisions. Major decisions are have their specific strategies for each one. But when it's for minor decisions, what I call low stakes and no stakes decisions, both have the same solution. Because when it comes to unimportant decisions, you make most of your unimportant decisions or minor, low stakes, no stakes decisions in a day without really thinking about it. It's completely reflexive. But when you spend a lot of time, more than a couple of minutes or seconds, deciding which sweater you're going to wear or what you're going to have for lunch or whether you should go for a run or not, that is simply wasted time. And so The strategy that you can deal with for both FOMO and FOBO in that instance is the same, and that is to basically outsource your decision making. And so I learned this in college. I used to spend a tremendous amount of time worried about things that didn't matter. Should I go for a run or not? That would consume 20 minutes of my life. Should I go to the library now, or should I go in an hour? Well, by the time I made my decision, it had been an hour. And so a friend of mine told me that whenever she had indecision, she would ask her watch. And I thought to myself, what could that possibly mean? And she would say, listen, Basically, it's like, should I go for a run or not? Yes or no? I imagine the left side of my watch, the left half of my watch is yes. The right half of my watch is no. And then I look down, I see where the second hand is and my decision is made for me. And so you can do that in many different ways, whether it's even a rod and looking at the time on your cell phone. You could, you know, ask the magic eight ball, <laughs> whatever you want to do. But the idea is taking decisions out of your own responsibility and outsourcing them, whether it is to something inanimate or to a person, asking a person to make that decision is really helpful when it comes to these small decisions, because at the end of the day, you're not going to remember even making this decision in a couple of hours or a couple of days. And you are bringing all of this drama into decision-making. And so you must take yourself out of the process in order to move forward with your day.
0: That's such a great way of looking at it, that you're bringing all this drama, I like that phrase, into what ultimately really are irrelevant or inconsequential decisions that have absolutely no impact on your life. And it can end up wasting huge amounts of time.
1: Yeah. And it takes all your energy. If you spend all your time trying to decide which pair of socks to wear, and then you walk into the office and you have to make a major strategic decision, you've already been (laughs) running down the gas tank before you even get started. So it's just not a good use of time. And and it is oftentimes, it's a self-deception trap that many of us use. It's like, oh man, I have to make an important decision today, but why don't I waste the entire day doing other things, procrastinating, dealing with minor parts of my life so that I can avoid dealing with what's really important. And so that's why it's important to get those off of your plate as quickly as possible.
0: So tell me a little bit more about this, the concept of outsourcing these low stake or no stakes decisions. And for somebody who might not really have clarity around when a decision fits into those categories. How do you think about categorizing stuff into either low stakes or no stakes as well?
1: It's very simple. Some people, I'm sure, will read the book or or listen to our conversation and they'll say to me, well, how can you simplify it down to three levels? I mean, I, I have low stakes and no stakes and medium stakes and medium low stakes and medium high stakes. Absolutely. We could make it that complicated. But by doing so, all we're doing is procrastinating and making our lives more complicated. The point here is that we want to simplify things as much as possible. And and that's really at the heart of the strategy I set forward in the book. And so when it comes to low stakes and no stakes decisions, the way I think about it, and it's, it's really simple, is number one, is this ephemeral? Will you have forgotten making this decision in a week, and that's for no stakes decisions, or a month for low stakes decisions? So, if it's gonna be something that impacts your life beyond month, if you're gonna in three months' time, look back and say, "Oh my goodness, you know this was really important and I'm glad I spent tons of time on it, then that is important and it, it has long-term effects and it requires more than being outsourced. But for many of the things that we get stuck on every day in our lives, that just won't happen. And so that's number one. Number two is, does the decision have consequences in terms of money time or its impact on yourself and others? If not, then it's either low stakes or no stakes. And finally, can you abide by the decision no matter what the outcome? And so, for example, if you're trying to decide, again, what to watch on Netflix, which is something that people spend tons of time on, even though It's not going to change your life. Think about it and and ask yourself if I end up watching one series over another, is my life going to be ruined? Of course not. And therefore, you can easily and comfortably put it into the world of low stakes and no stakes. That's the way I divide them now. The no stakes again is something that's truly you're not going to remember in a day or two, or perhaps a week. And so those are the ones I outsource to the watch for anything a little bit more considered. Something like, for example, where I should go on vacation, or where should we go to dinner this weekend, or should I buy this? desk or that desk or this TV or that TV. What I recommend is actually going and outsourcing to a person. And so letting somebody in your life help you with the answer, because chances are, 99% 99% of the time, you won't even need help. You'll have made the decision on your own. But if you do need help, what that tells you is that you have options and they're so close in your mind that you're basically indifferent. Any of them could be fine. Any of them could work out. So therefore, you want to find somebody to help you just make a decision already. And so that could be you know, asking a family member or a colleague or delegating to somebody, but it's the idea of just, I don't make dinner plans anymore. When somebody says, where should we go, I always just say, you know, I'm looking for something healthy this weekend, so let's do healthy food, and then why don't you pick what you like? And you know what? I'm very happy with that outcome. And so I think as I've done this, I've realized that I feel more and more comfortable outsourcing, and it's a great way to free up time in your life and your schedule for the things that matter.
0: Welding instructor Alex Declare knows VR training platforms like Forge FX help students master their skills.
1: There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com/slash metaverse impact.
0: Something that entrepreneurs I think really intuitively grasp that underpins this whole idea. One of the most important conclusions from all of this to me is this core idea that decisiveness is really much more important than perfection.
1: Most definitely because, and we see this in entrepreneurial ventures all the time, and one of my favorite books, and I'm sure you've read this and and many of the listeners have read this, is Eric Ries, The Lean Startup. And that book is all about making tiny decisions, testing and then learning and then moving on to another thing. And if you can't make even the smallest decisions and try something out, see if it works, how can you build a new venture? And so there is no perfection asymmetry of information makes that guaranteed. But what there is, is pushing the ball down the field towards the goal, being flexible, and then pushing it forward again and again and again.
0: One of my favorite decision-making heuristics from the entrepreneurial world is a great letter to shareholders from Jeff Bezos, where he just talks about two heuristics that he uses to help make better decisions. And one of them is, is it reversible? which oftentimes people never ask themselves that, but it's how easy is it to reverse it? And it's another way of looking at how big are the consequences. And the second heuristic is make decisions with 70% of the information that you think you need instead of 100%. And to me, both of those are such great ways to get to that same conclusion, which is at the end of the day, it's better to make a half decent decision and move on than it is to waste an hour, five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever it is, depending on the stakes on a decision that has no impact on your life ultimately.
1: Absolutely, and what's more, and I love that example, because Bezos is, is such a decisive person. What's more is great leaders you've never heard a great leader being described as indecisive. It's like, oh, you know, I love Angela Merkel, she's so indecisive. No, of course not. Leadership requires people to be decisive and to communicate a vision to the people around them. And so, if you as a leader are waiting to have all the answers so that you can make a riskless decision, if you're that risk averse, you will never achieve greatness. You won't even achieve mediocrity, right? Because you won't get out of the gates, you'll just be stuck waiting for the perfect thing to come along and it's just not realistic. And the scary part is, if you wait for too long, the options that you had in hand that you decided to wait before choosing, they may disappear, right? Nothing stays forever. And so that is another reason why it's important to be decisive because if you wait too long, you may have no options at all.
0: And that really brings to bear a fundamentally important conclusion that gets back to why decision-making is such a powerful skill to learn and master, which is that if you want to be a great leader, you basically have to be a great decision-maker.
1: Yes, you do. And at the end of the day, if you think about what the job of a CEO is or the job of an entrepreneur is, it's to take data, incomplete data sets, draw conclusions, and plot a path forward. And if you are not doing that, if you are the micromanager CEO who's worried about the catering, I mean, that's when you should be outsourcing, right? Or ask the watch or something. Because what happens a lot of times with leaders who fail is they spend their time and energy on making the wrong decisions. And that's because they are procrastinating and avoiding the hard decisions. And so that phobo scenario that I talk about with Audi, that was all about just not being able to make the hard decisions and it costs them a market. And so it's really important to not get mired in indecision.
0: And you brought up something earlier that I want to come back to that touches on the same subject, which is this idea that it's easy to delude yourself into thinking that you are a good decision maker, but really in the bigger high stakes decision points, that is where the cracks really show up. And if you haven't done the work and spent the time improving your ability to make decisions, that's when it really comes out. And we've seen that. I mean, you had a couple of great examples, but the coronavirus pandemic has really demonstrated that in many ways, too
1: it has and what also tends to happen is when we make decisions we very rarely go back and learn from our decision making process. So in the book and in the strategies that I lay out in how to make better big decisions because big decisions you're clearly not going to outsource them, right? These need to be made by you. You need to take responsibility. These are things that impact your life, your well-being, the well-being of those around you going forward in a meaningful way. So when you do the big decisions, there's a whole process for that and one important part of the process is to write everything down. And I actually do this, write everything down, create like a little memo. I think about it as a venture capitalist, which is what I do by day, as an investment memo. Because every decision you're making is sort of like an investment in yourself and your time and your energy going forward. And then keeping that written record and going back to it in the future periodically and assessing, you know, okay, what did I get right, what did I get wrong? Where can I learn from what I did? What would I do differently? How would I gather better data to make this decision? And then as you go forward, it's it's one of these things we often don't think about is you can learn to make better decisions, not just by doing but, and reading and studying and, and learning from great people, but by looking at your own decision making process and saying what worked and what didn't and what can I change going forward.
0: Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with the term decision journals, but it's essentially exactly what you're describing. And it's a great exercise to really just write down what's the decision, why are you making it, and even do a little bit of a pre-mortem or a forecast of here's what I think is going to happen, here's what might go wrong. And you do that for the major decisions in your life, and it gives you an incredible record to go back and look at, wow, I'm systematically underweighting this risk, or I'm systematically too optimistic about this particular thing. It's one of the few ways to access a little bit the power of the concept of deliberate practice and apply it in some way to getting feedback on your decision-making over time.
1: Yeah, I'd never heard of that term. I always think about, from my own experiences, when you make investments as a venture capitalist, every year you do a portfolio review, and you look at the company that you invested in, you assess where it is today, and you compare it versus your original investment thesis, and your due diligence, and your projections, and you say, okay, like what did we get right and wrong? What were the patterns we missed? What does this implication have for what we do going forward with our capital? And one thing that I really love is that some venture capital firms... They're very open about talking about their anti-portfolio. And the anti-portfolio is basically the companies they didn't invest in, that they had the opportunity to. So there's a VC fund called Bessemer, which is very open about the fact that they could have invested in Facebook and Google and tells the story behind why they didn't invest and where they got it wrong. And they sort of celebrate it. And I think that's a very healthy way – to think about decision making because the other thing that we have to remember is just because you made a decision and you did your best, you you know, you sort of did the process, it doesn't mean you're going to be right. It's just life. We never know what's going to happen. We can't control the outcomes of everything we do. And so therefore, we should be comfortable knowing that we are going to make mistakes, but we should be open to learning from them.
0: Yeah, that's another hugely important conclusion. And I'm a big poker player. That's one of the lessons that poker can teach you very rapidly is that the decision quality and outcome are not necessarily the same thing. And you can make a great decision, and get a bad outcome, and you can make a terrible decision and get a great outcome. That makes it even more important to have some kind of ability or mechanism to go back and really review your decision making in some way. So I'm curious, I want to dig into some of the other strategies that you recommend for making better high-stakes decisions when it really matters, what are the tools that you can use to make a better decision?
1: Yeah. So let's start with FOMO and then we'll move on to FOBO. But yes, when you get to a major decision and it could be something, let's take jobs. Okay. I think all of us have been through this before. So something we can all understand You are working in a job and all of a sudden, you feel this FOMO, I wanna be an entrepreneur. Many of us have felt that, I certainly have. And you ask yourself, maybe I should do this, maybe I should start a company, okay, great. How do you know whether you should do that? How do you know whether this is simply FOMO or if this is something that is meaningful and should be explored? Well, when we think about the components of FOMO, there are really two things. Number one, as I mentioned before, it's this aspiration. It's the idea that there's something better out there for you than what you're doing at the moment. The second is that this idea of the herd, that you know you see all these people making money, and entrepreneurship is marketed in a way to us that makes it look like it's the greatest thing ever, and that if you become an entrepreneur, all of a sudden you're going to be rich and happy, and you're going to make a movie about you. And there's definitely this whole marketing element that provokes FOMO in people. And that's been part of entrepreneurship as an industry for a long time now. And so you need to attack each one of those separately. For the sort of aspirational bit, you need to ask yourself, okay, it looks great on the surface. And you know I can have a lot of control and make a lot of money. And wow, you know I'd love to be an entrepreneur. But is that even real? That's the big thing you want to get at is you want to have a process to find out if all of the stuff that you think is so great, which by the way, you have no way of knowing because of information asymmetry, are those things for real or not? And so you're gonna ask yourself some very basic questions like can I justify doing this, becoming an entrepreneur? Can I afford to do it? Can I do it without sacrificing other more important goals? Is there an ROI, a return on investment, if I decide to do this? And is this even possible to me? Can I actually make this happen? You know, it's, if I'm dreaming of opening a restaurant, but I know nothing about the industry, does that even make sense to me? Or am I just sort of daydreaming, right? And so doing the work of gathering the information, doing your due diligence to strip away as much of the information asymmetry as possible is part one of sort of making good decisions when you feel formal. Part two is really about attacking the herd. Why do you want to do this? Is this something you've always wanted to do and make sense in your life? Or are you doing it because you you saw it on TV and it looked good for a minute or because your friend did it? And it sounds silly, but people do these things all the time. And so you really need to ask yourself, like, is this actually something I want to do? Or am I sort of just falling victim to wanting to do something I saw somebody else do? And if you attack each of those components and gather data, write your memo that will 9 times out of 10 give you the answer to what you're trying to decide and At that point, if you still haven't decided, I would encourage you to consult other people. Show them what you've written, explain it to them, and and try to get their feedback, because other people can poke holes in your logic if it isn't sound. And then, if you're still indecisive, and you're still stuck, it's at that point I say go for it. Because at that point, you've done the work, you've gone through, you've attacked information asymmetry, you've figured out your true motivations, you've exposed it to the sunlight of day by getting other people's opinions. And if you're indifferent at that point, Point, you've done enough work to know that it probably is a good idea. And, you know, life is about taking a little risk, so go for it. And that's how you deal with FOMO when it comes to a big decision. And if you're still afraid, then you could consider going in a part time nature, as we talked about earlier, because you can approach something in a risk mitigated way and say, I'm not going to throw caution to the wind and jump in full time, but I'm going to find a way to explore this and at least, you know, further validate what I think is a good decision. So that's the FOMO. Now, on fobo it's kind of a different thing so fobo as we talked about before is a combination of a belief that something better is going to come along and a desire to keep your options open for as long as possible because the longer you wait the more flexibility you have and here what's interesting is initially i thought the problem with fobo is that maximization is bad for you but in fact it's okay to want the best the problem is that when we have phobo, we make decisions incorrectly and it's our process that we need to change and so let's think back about should i you know choose this job or that say you've got three job opportunities on the table and you're trying to decide between them, right? And this happens all the time. Somebody who's hired people, it's like you know your candidate is basically sort of like delaying and delaying because they're indecisive and they're waiting for something else to come along. And so that's not good for anybody, right? And so how do you deal with that? Well, the thing is The problem that candidates have when they're making a decision between jobs isn't so much that they want the best thing, it's that they're not willing to let go of the thing they can't have. When you make a decision and choose just one thing, you must let go of other things that you cannot have. And people, when they get stuck, aren't willing to let go. And so that's what you've got to do. You've got to simply eliminate options from the pile and not return to them. And so the process I recommend is basically Pick a front runner based on all this research. You're going to do the same sort of due diligence and try to strip away the information asymmetry and learn as much as you can. And that will eliminate some things naturally as you learn more about them. Then you're going to write your memo and try to figure out sort of the base elements of these things. And then you're just going to pick one of them, the one that your kind of gut tells you is the best. And you're going to compare one by one the other options to this front runner. And each time you do that one on one comparison, you're going to choose the better of the two and eliminate permanently the lesser of the two. And by doing that, you're cheating two things. First, you're choosing the better. So you feel good. It's like, okay, I'm getting the better of these options. Second, you're eliminating something forever. And therefore, you are not tempted to go back to it. And in doing so, you're just like cleaning the clutter out of your life. And that allows you to move forward and finally choose something. And if you get stuck at the very end, again, this nine times out of 10 will solve your problem. If you get stuck at the very end, then I encourage you to consult with a couple of people, and I actually would consult with three to five people, odd number of people, and actually just have them sort of make the decision for you. And if you need a tiebreaker, you've got one, because it's at this point. Remember, you have acceptable options. It's not that you have nothing to choose from. You have acceptable options. The problem is that you are so close between them; they are so similar that basically you're indifferent. And therefore, the problem here isn't that you you don't have something to choose. The problem is that you can't choose, and you need to actually get somebody else to do that work for you.
0: And it comes back to something you said a minute ago that I thought was really insightful is this idea that to be a great leader, to be a successful entrepreneur, to achieve what you want in your life, you have to be willing to take risk. At some level, you can do the due diligence, you can do the homework, you can get as much information as possible, but ultimately... Even the root of the word decision itself is to cut something off. And you have to be willing to take some level of risk to make those bold decisions to really achieve anything meaningful in your life.
1: It's hard to close doors in order to, when you walk through one door, you have to leave the rest behind you. And we don't want to mourn what we can't have, right? Because it's attractive to feel like you can keep all your options open and always go back. But of course, if you do that, as I mentioned before, let's think about the decision-making around coronavirus, difficult decisions, right? But if you procrastinate and wait and wait and wait until you take action, the problem itself can grow so big that suddenly the the things that you could have done before aren't even available to you anymore. And so that can happen in all aspects of your life. And you need to move as quickly as you can choose something acceptable in order to make sure that you still even have options later on.
0: Yeah, that's another really great point. And the idea that it's almost an illusion that you think waiting may lead to better options, but it just as easily or maybe more likely could lead to the evaporation of the options that you thought you had.
1: Definitely, because part of it is environmental, like the example I just gave. If you're dealing with a fast moving situation, every day your set of options may change. That's just part of reality. But even if you're not in a crisis situation, by delaying your decision making, you really, truly risk the danger of alienating people around you. For example, say you're pushing off employers before you make a decision. That's why people give exploding offers because they don't want to deal with you, you know? And so, unfortunately, we have to come up with all these mechanisms to basically force people to make decisions. That's why companies will have a 50-minute flash sale because they know that at the end of the day, nobody wants to decide on anything, so they have to create a sense of urgency to get people to do anything. And so that is part of the game and other people aren't going to tolerate your indecisiveness forever.
0: And the flip side of this or the upshot of this in many ways is that if you can train yourself to be a better decision maker, it's a pretty rare skill set to be very decisive and willing to take risk and take action. And in a world where there's so much indecision, it it becomes really valuable to be able to train yourself in that skill set.
1: Most definitely. And I think… We are drawn to leaders who are decisive, and there are not that many of them out there. But this is something that can be very valuable to you, not just in the corporate environment or in entrepreneurship, but in your personal life. Just setting direction and moving quickly through things and giving the people around you a sense of security and the fact that things are getting done is very valuable in the family settings and with friends and everybody. I mean, if you think about your friends, how much time do you spend trying to organize that group chat or trying to organize the trip or the dinner, right? How much time do we spend on those kinds of things these days? And it's completely ridiculous. And I do this all the time now. I'll say like, let's do this at this time. You have 10 minutes to say yes or no. And if you don't respond, I'll assume you're not coming. And guess what? People show up, they respond.
0: I've been very fortunate and I don't know if it's a a combination of spending so many years and and so much time studying the topic of decision-making or maybe some of it is just my innate disposition, but I think the more you study this, I've really started to internalize almost this checklist or this framework of any decision in my life I run through in almost instantaneous speed. Is this something that really matters? Is it important? Is it going to really matter which option I pick? And, and after you train yourself in it, it becomes really easy to just say, oh, this is irrelevant. Do whatever you want. I don't care. I'm indifferent. Do it and let's move on.
1: I'm glad to hear that. I feel like having written a book about decision making, I thought I was fine, but I feel like I'm a much stronger decision maker than I was. And what I realized in the process is that indecision is like a prison. And the minute that you can break out of that, you have freedom. It's very liberating to just say, this isn't important. I'm just going to decide. I'm moving on to something
0: else. So for somebody who's been listening to our conversation and they want to take action in some way to be more decisive, to make better decisions, what would be one action item or first step you would give them to begin down that journey?
1: So the first thing I would do is be ruthless with yourself about not wasting time on no-stakes decisions. So as you proceed through your day today or when you wake up tomorrow and you're starting and you find one of those little no-stakes decisions, it just doesn't matter what T-shirt should I put on, which shoes should I wear, one of those things, or you know, what should I order, should I have the fries or the salad with my burger, or whatever that is in your life. I want you to, number one, call it out, recognize that it's phobo. And number two, I want you to ask the watch or ask the cell phone or whatever it is, inanimate object you want to choose, but simply outsource it. And I guarantee, do it one time. And it's one of these things that like it sounds so silly. When I first heard this idea, I was like, eh, really? The amount of people who have gotten in touch with me to tell me how powerful that was in their lives was shocking to me. And I know because I use it four times a day. And so try that. That
0: is your first step. And if you can start
1: doing that and see the power of that, I'm convinced that you'll move on to some of the other concepts we talked about as well.
0: Great strategy and really good recommendation. Patrick, for listeners who want to find the book, find out more about you and your work online, what is the best place for them to do that?
1: Yes, well, the best place to go to find me is my website, which is patrickmcginnis.com. There you can find a link to order the book. It's on Amazon, of course. And also you can check out I have a podcast called FOMO Sapiens, which is distributed by Harvard Business Review. So you can find episodes there or you know, wherever you like to listen to podcasts, you can also find me on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, Instagram, Patrick J McGinnis, and on Facebook, it's Patrick J McGinnis. So I'm in all of those places. But the best place to go to find all of that together is my website, patrickmcGinnis.com.
0: Well, Patrick, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing all this wisdom, some really great insights into how we can overcome FOMO, FOBO, and how we can make much better decisions. Hey, thanks a lot, Matt, and best of luck. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email.